All right, so open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 is what we'll be covering this, this morning. Mark 1. I'll read and we'll pray. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we're gathering here this morning. Um, as we gather, we gather around Jesus. We're not here to, um, to hear from a man or a band or whatever. We want to hear from the living God this morning. And Lord, I pray those who walk in darkness today would see the light of truth that is Jesus Christ. Those who are on the fringe of belief in Jesus, you would go to them, Lord, as you did in the story of Mark. When you went to the fringe, you went to the edges to show the life of God was closer to them than they thought. I pray that you would anoint me, Lord, uh, this morning to speak your truth. I pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. That we would be a community in San Francisco that worships and follows Jesus. And everywhere we go and in everything we do. Show us what that means today in the inbreaking of your kingdom, how your kingdom is a part of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in Mark for the last, this is the fourth week now that we've, we started the church three weeks ago in the book of Mark. We've been looking into what Mark writes about the raw and the real Jesus. Mark has a, a particular writing style. The way he writes this is in a, a particular and peculiar way. He has a way of like wrapping us up into the into the this rapid unfolding story of who Jesus is. And just 13 verses, we've only talked about 13 verses so far. Mark sets the stage for the ministry of Jesus. Mark tells us that the he tells us the readers who the real Jesus is right from the very beginning, the real identity of Jesus. He says this, that he is the Christ, the son of God. That's how Mark opens his book. And the thing is that ironically no one else really understands this fully. But he lets the reader in right away. Okay, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then John the Baptist burst out on the scene, heralding his coming. And the Father and the Son, when I mean, the Father and the Spirit confirm Jesus' identity in his baptism. But the only people that see and hear heaven, the heavens torn open and hear the voice from heaven are us, the readers, and Jesus. No one else sees it. And then Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's thrust or literally cast out by the Spirit of God immediately into the wild for an apocalyptic confrontation with the kingdom of darkness. That's what we talked about last week. As we read and learned from Mark's gospel, it's very important if we're a community that really wants to embody this. It's very important that we, that we make the points from Mark's narrative that he wants to make in his narrative. Or said differently, the points that we're making from the book of Mark are primarily and largely the points Mark himself is making about the real Jesus. So I want to, as much as we can, hopefully you've got a chance to read the book of Mark at home or something like that. What I want to do is I want to stay as much as we can in the narrative of Mark and ask ourselves why Mark employs maybe such brevity on this point, like he just passes right over something. Why is he doing that? Or why does he, he, he employ irony here or sandwiches a, a story in the middle of two teachings that don't seem to go together. Why does Mark do this? 
Because what we'll find in Mark's book is that his, he has an inspired and literary goal to show us Jesus. To reveal to us in this unfolding drama, the, with vivid scenes, the, the nature and the power and the mission of Christ. And today we'll look at one of the most crucial, and we can't, I don't really want to do like a five-part series on this point, so I'm going to try to go through it as, as well as I, as I can, but it will be short. Probably one of the most crucial themes in all the gospel, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? As it says here in Mark, Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and told people to repent and to believe the gospel. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God taking that, that takes place in time and space, it's, and we're going to see it's the inbreaking of God that happens. We got a little taste of this last week or two weeks ago when heaven was torn open, Jesus' baptism. But here, Jesus actually says the first words, his first words in this gospel, he shows up and saying and announcing the kingdom of God. So this is how we'll look at it. It's on the screen. The kingdom as promised, the kingdom as present, and the kingdom as paradox. The kingdom as, as promised, um, as present, and also a kingdom that's, that's, that's a, a bit of a paradox. So the first thing that we have to, to unpack and un, undo is the fact that the kingdom is a promised kingdom. Look at verse 15. And Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. These were the first words of Jesus in Mark's story. And, this, and the scene arises out of this epic conflict with Satan. Remember, we're not told the nature of the battle with Satan last week. Mark leaves that out. We're, we're, we're not told how it ended up. That's left out as well. Jesus goes into the wild, into the darkness, and emerges proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. It's like if you ever watched a movie where, where there's, there's a battle scene, but you don't really know who wins until the winner emerges and, just said, and he, he like comes out victorious. It's like that. No, no one knows who wins, but Jesus bursts out saying the kingdom of God is at hand, contextually suggesting that Jesus came out on top. He succeeded where Adam had failed and the opposing dominion of Satan had been undermined. Jesus emerged saying the kingdom of God is at hand, or literally, the kingdom of God has come near. What did Jesus mean by that? Okay, what did Jesus mean that the kingdom of God came near? So Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near you. What did Jesus mean by that? Now, this, this only makes sense if we put this expression into its context. It only makes sense if we know the story so far. It'd be like if, I'd say, if I would say, they're coming into the home stretch. If I just walked up and said, welcome, they're coming into the home stretch, guys. Like, who's coming into the home stretch? Are they in a race? Who, what, what does that mean? You have to set that into context. When Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, nobody talks like that. I mean, you guys don't really talk like that. I don't think you guys do. Like, the kingdom has come. We don't, we don't really talk with kings and kingdoms and, and a dominion. We don't talk like that. But they did. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, it means something to them. So let me define the kingdom for you. Here's the kingdom defined. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new, 
unprecedented age of blessing, prosperity, and joy. The Jewish people had this wonderful hope that one day, because they believed that God was the true God, and one day the true God would become the true king of the world, that God would break into time and space and take his rightful place. The hope was that the whole world would be under the rule of God, the domain of God. Now, this hope was spiritual, and this hope was spatial. It was spiritual. The power of sin would be destroyed when God came. The enemy Satan would be disarmed when God came, and all people would worship God. It was spiritual. When God came as king to establish a kingdom, it would be spiritual, but also be spatial. You see, Israel was oppressed, was an oppressed people. They were oppressed by all different kinds of people throughout the centuries and the generations. All different kings and kingdoms continued to oppress. And only when King David was king did they, were, not, were they not under oppression. But every other time they were always oppressed. And they believed that one would come and sit on David's throne and the world would not know poverty or hunger anymore, so it was economic. The world would not, would not be, there wouldn't be oppressive governments They would all be brought down, so it was political, and the world would not know famine or deprivation, and all animals would get along, so it would be environmental as well. And this is what they believed. This is what they hoped for. This is what the Old Testament writers wrote about. This is what they sang. When they sang songs, it was about this, that God was coming, and God would be the true king of the world, and animals would get along, and things wouldn't... It wouldn't be thorns anymore and death anymore and sin anymore and wicked governments anymore. It would all be put right. Simply put, the kingdom of God was the rule of God, where God became the rightful ruling king of the world. Therefore, the followers of God were an eschatological people with an eschatological hope. Eschatology has to do with the end of all things. So the people of God in the Old Testament were eschatological. When they gathered, they gathered knowing, hey, we're looking forward to a day when our God will become king of the world. So they were an eschatological people. Being an eschatological people meant they waited and they clung to a hope of a better future. When they met together, they spoke to each other about a better future. That our nation, our world will have a better future where God would would right every wrong where he would restore all that is broken and bring to an end all the present evil age. They had this hope. Now, when they, when they thought about this, this is very important, when they thought about the kingdom of God, there was two things that had to happen in their mind. Okay? The first was there was a closing curtain and then an opening of a curtain. There was... God would close out the present evil kingdom and open up a brand new kingdom. That's very important. He would put to to naught and and he would throw down every opposing kingdom. He would close the kingdom of darkness and he would open the kingdom of light. So, break it down like this. A closed curtain and an open curtain. God would close a curtain on this age and that was known as Satan's time. God would come and he would close Satan's time characterized by sin, sickness, demon possession, and evil people triumphing. So God would come as king, and he would close the present kingdom, but he would also open up a new kingdom, the age to come. 
the time when God would rule. This was characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, righteousness, health, peace. So when a Jew saw or heard the kingdom of God, it meant something so deep about the nature and the character of God that it evoked emotions that were tied to their hopes and their fears, their present and their future. This was a big deal. If I walked up and said the kingdom of God is at hand, it might not be a big deal to you. But when Jesus and John the Baptist came and said the kingdom of God is at hand, they took notice. All of this was wrapped up into those, in that phrase. All of this context came rushing out going, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why so many people rushed out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. It says all of Jerusalem went out. They were hoping and waiting for this day to happen. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, and Mark borrows heavily from Isaiah, there was a, an apocalyptic hope given to the people of God. Now, when I say apocalyptic, don't think of widespread disaster, okay? Like apocalyptic? No. The, one of the first definitions of, of apocalyptic means this, a prophetic revelation concerning a, a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. That's what they thought of. So in the, in the Old Testament, there were these apocalyptic promises. Now, the difference between an apocalyptic promise and a prophetic promise is a prophetic promise had to do with this is what's going to happen in time, an apocalyptic promise is when this is what's going to happen when God breaks into time. And there was something importantly different about both of those. God was going to break in and do something new. Now, one of those promises came in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 9 says this, but there will be no more gloom. This is one of the apocalyptic hopes that they held to. And there will be no more gloom for, who, for her who is in anguish. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a, in a land deep, of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the whole government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was a hope that the people of God held to. Now check this out. Look what Mark's writing here. Who had just come from beyond the Jordan where they were baptized? Who had just came into Galilee? Jesus. What Mark is telling us is that this is Jesus. The great light is breaking into the darkness, and all those who dwelt in a deep land of darkness, light was about to shine. All of the hope of Israel came near to them in Jesus. Jesus says this by proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a context to this. Please let us not be the people that think that the Bible is written in English. That, oh, it, it just pertains to America. It just pertains to English. No, there is a context to the Bible. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and says the kingdom of God has come, it means something to them. And what we see here is that Jesus is saying that the kingdom not only was promised 
But now the kingdom is present. The kingdom is now present in Jesus. What Jesus is saying that the time of waiting for God's promise intervention is over. It is here in him. This is something that Israel had been waiting for for generations. Their God, the true and righteous king, would break into the lives, into the context, into their reality, into their world, and be the true and present king in establishing his kingdom. That the power The sovereignty, the rule of God would break into humanity and right every wrong and subdue their enemies. Now, Jesus came differently. And you have to understand this. From all other faiths and all other proclamations or religions, Jesus came differently because he's not presented merely as the one who brings the Father's message. Like, Muhammad is presented in Islam as the final prophet who brings Allah's message. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the message. He is the word, and he's the one bringing it. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near you because I am near you. He says to them, the kingdom of God is at hand because I am at hand. The king is in your midst. That's what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God has come near. It is present because the promised inbreaking of God had always been far off. It was always this flickering hope off in the apocalyptic distance. But it has now become available in Jesus. All their hopes were now wrapped up in who he was. And what we're shown in rapid fire succession is the rest of Mark's narrative is how this kingdom of God breaking in, what it does when the rule of God is becoming a present reality. What does it look like when the, when the kingdom of God breaks into human reality? One, we're going to see this in probably a couple weeks or maybe next week. In verse 24 of chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus gets in a synagogue, and all these people are gathered around him. He starts to teach the Bible, preach the gospel. The gospel is at hand, and he's preaching pe- to people, and he's teaching them. And then this demoniac stands up. And this is what this demoniac says to Jesus. He stands up and says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the answer is, yes. Jesus came to destroy them. And it's almost rhetorical. Have you come to destroy us? And obviously in the narrative, if you're reading Mark, you're going, yep. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to destroy them. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason... The Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13 about what Jesus came to do. Jesus has delivered us from the domain. See the the language there? The rule, the domain, the kingdom. The domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom, into the rule of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan and deliver people from his rule and every other claim to earthly power. We said this last week, that demons dominate, illnesses make them less than whole, nature threatens to destroy, and humans oppress other humans. This is what happens when everything broke down in Genesis. And what the inbreaking kingdom of God does is challenge every other claim to power. 
What Jesus did was he went after demons, illnesses, nature, humans. He went after everything. Everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order, the inbreaking of God comes to bring freedom. So Jesus comes in. And Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, not to submit to them. Jesus' whole ministry is portrayed in the Gospels as a mighty onslaught on the works of Satan. Whether he took the form of, it, it took the form of sickness, he healed sickness. Demon possession, he freed him. Hypocrisy, he came against it. Cruelty, hard-heartedness of, among rulers, he came against all of it. And his whole ministry is, is interpreted as the inbreaking of God, the breaking in of the reign and the rule and the life of God to release those whom Satan has bound. This is what Jesus does. Therefore, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the inbreaking of God was present in Jesus. But there's also a paradox to the kingdom. There's also a part of the kingdom that is really hard to grasp. To be totally honest, if you saw my office this last week, there was every square inch of my carpet was filled with books. I mean, I was reading just everywhere. Every single time you think you get the kingdom of God, you don't get the kingdom of God. It's, the very, it's, it's when you don't get the kingdom of God that you do get the kingdom of God. And there is this paradox that lies. I'm like, okay, I think I understand it now. And then as soon as I, I thought that, it would fly away. And I'm like, oh, I don't understand it anymore. I'm so confused now. And then I would be confused. And then in my confusion, I would get it. And then I'd go, I get it. And then I'd be confused again. <laughs> there is a paradox to the kingdom of God. Now, check out this paradox. Remember when we defined the kingdom? We said that the kingdom the Jews believed the Messiah would bring was a kingdom that closed the curtain on this present age, Satan's domain, and opened the curtain to the kingdom come, the rule of God. But Mark's narrative, we encounter a disturbing paradox. The way Mark tells this story is very disturbing right here. You might brush over it. If you weren't paying attention, you probably didn't even catch it. You just probably read right through it. If, as Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of God is near, how is it that John the Baptist, who appeared as the herald of Jesus' message, was arrested and would eventually be put to death? If the kingdom of God is really here, why is one of his messengers in prison? Look at verse 14 in, John, in Mark 1. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the kingdom, the, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark says, John was arrested and Jesus proclaimed. Check out what's happening in this story. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom as the one who ushered in his ministry is being arrested. If the kingdom of God is at hand, then why is one of his, its servants on his way to his undeserved death? Or said differently, if the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus and is really present in human reality, how is it possible that seemingly innocent people still suffer and die? All right, so you're saying the kingdom of God is here. Why am I sick? You're saying the kingdom of God is here. Why is everything just still so messed up? And the way that Mark writes this is very provocative. He says, oh, one of God's servants is arrested and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And the reader should say, wait, that, that, those two things don't go together. You can't, you can't have a servant of God arrested and then the kingdom of God at hand as well. If the kingdom of God is really at hand, then oppressive governments don't arrest righteous people. In, the, in a first century Jewish mind, this wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. This is not how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God comes and he closes the curtain on Satan's rule. He closes the curtain on oppressive governments. He closes the curtain on these things. If Israel's God was to become king of the world, an unjust government could not imprison one of his followers. And clearly, God in Jesus had broken into history because Jesus was casting out demons. He was healing the sick. He was forgiving sins. He was showing power over nature, even over death. One time when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, they said, you're just the king of Satan. You're you're Beelzebub. You're, you're, you're like the prince of, of the demons. That's why you can cast out demons. And Jesus says this in Luke, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm casting out demons, it's not by the power of Satan. It's by the power of God, and the kingdom of God has broken in. The kingdom has come, and proof was a reversal. Jesus was setting things back to created order. The kingdom had come with fullness, power, signs, wonders. But here we have John the Baptist. In the same breath, Mark says that John was arrested and Jesus was proclaiming the inbreaking of God. It's a paradox. It's a bit of a juxtaposition. What's going on? This is what commentators call the already, not yet of the kingdom of God. The already, not yet. The kingdom of God has actually come into history. It's already here. Although, we are waiting for its complete realization. It's not yet. Or, to borrow a term from 90s popular candy culture, the kingdom of God is now and later. If you're into that. The king, if that will help you remember it a little bit better, if you grew up in the 90s and love now and later, you probably know. If not, you probably don't know. The kingdom of God is already not yet. It's now and it's later. It's both. The story of Jesus as told by Mark is a story that means to affirm that the kingdom of God is actually, though not completely, here. One important um, ways that Mark frames this story about the real Jesus is actually two scenes. If you read the entire narrative of Mark, it actually takes place around two regions. The first region is um, the region of Galilee, and the next region is the region of Jerusalem. In Galilee, Jesus comes in, and how he introduces, how Mark introduces Jesus in, the, in what's, what, what people call the honeymoon period of Jesus' ministry, the ministry in Galilee, the effective, powerful ministry in Galilee, he, the way Mark says he entered in Galilee was, was proclaiming the kingdom of God. But then, in chapter 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And how did Jesus go into, into Jerusalem? As a king on a donkey. And people saying, Hosanna, save us, king, now. Save now. Hosanna, you are king. Only to go to his betrayal, trial, and death in Jerusalem. So there must be this tension. We must hold these two in tension. Mark's gospel does. Mark's story is that there's a tension in this world between the kingdom of God has already come, but the kingdom of God is not yet. We must, what we must do as followers of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, is hold these two in tension. 
And the reason why I think this city is so anti-religion is because most of the American world, a lot of the American world, doesn't, don't hold these two intention really well. In places like San Francisco, it's reflected heavily. Yes, we affirm the kingdom of God and the rule of God is taking place on earth right now. People are being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son to follow and worship Jesus. That is happening. And yes, we affirm that the kingdom and the rule of God has not met its complete realization yet. And evil still remains in the world. And we must rightly see and understand this tension because the church, the followers of Jesus, has been, have been so guilty of messing this up. See, on one hand, you have people that follow Jesus that say, they're a little bit too much now. They're like too much already kingdom. They're too much now and not enough later. They want now, all now. And, and, and what you have when you have too much now is a social gospel or hyper-fundamentalism. You have a social gospel or people that are super hyper-fundamentalists. You have the social gospel, no proclamation, no preaching sin, no calling to repentance, just good deeds. Just serving, serving, serving. Are you going to tell them that they need Jesus? No, we're just going to be Jesus. Well, when are you going to tell them that they need to follow Jesus? Well, I hope that they just follow me and then they start following Jesus. Is there any proclamation of the word of God? No, we're just serving. And he turns in the social gospel. This was not like Jesus, if you read the gospels. But there's also, there's an extreme, even to that extreme, you had hyper-fundamentalists. Best described, probably best embodied, if you were around Thursday, the Westboro Baptist Church came to picket. And this is how the SF Gate described them coming. And I quote, Everyone's favorite anti-gay, anti-Jew, anti-military, anti-Lady Gaga, anti-hockey, anti-basketball zealots are coming to San Francisco. And these people embody, I don't even know what they embody. They don't embody the gospel. They don't embody Jesus. They just pick it and hate everything. I was on their website last night just trying to find what they affirm. They don't affirm anything. They just are against everything. They're they're known by I hate, we hate, God hates everything. And this is nothing, nothing like Jesus at all. D.A. Carson, in a book called Christ and Culture Revisited, I highly recommend if if you follow Jesus and you're like, how do I live in culture and follow Jesus at the same time? I highly recommend that you get this book. He writes, he says this about fundamentalists, hyper-fundamentalists. He says this, much of this cultural engagement that fundamentalists have is reactive. Fundamentalists spot directions being taken by the broader culture, and they feel they are immoral or dangerous and adopt strategies to confront them and, if possible, overturn them. At the risk of generalization, they are reasonably effective at combating what they do not like in a culture even while exhibiting relatively little interest in the ways one should support the culture working into worlds of art and music. A substantial part of an appeal to this tradition is this. America may not be a Christian nation, they say, but it was founded on Christian principles, and the movement itself is an appeal to return to such Christian principles. So the whole movement is like, we need to return to the Christian principles of America, 
And this is what D.A. Carson writes beautifully. It would be more realistic to acknowledge that the founding of the nation was born along by an adherence to some Christian principles and not others. After all, there cannot be many today who, from any camp, want to return to slavery. So, what happens is this camp is known by fighting against everything. Everything in the name of Christianity. And what happens in this camp, the camp that goes, we want it now, 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 is that you, get, you have to either be extremely liberal or extremely conservative. You have to be extremely liberal where you're like, we're, just, we're not even going to preach sin, repentance, all this stuff. We're just going to say we're going to serve. Or you have the other side of it where you're extremely conservative. Or there's another camp, the too much later camp, the too much kingdom not yet camp, the people that go, well, the kingdom isn't, isn't here now, it's later, so we don't really even care. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. We want to escape. And these are some pretty nasty titles, but I'll say them anyways. Lazy dispensationalists and Christian ghetto escapists. <sighs> okay. I don't want to offend anybody, but whatever. People that believe the world is going to hell, and so they want to escape and live in homogenous communities where everyone thinks and votes the same way they do. Some people call these suburbs. (laughs) But I will not. This, too, is not like Jesus. People that go, well, the kingdom's coming. It's not now, so whatever. This world's going to hell. This nation's going to hell. We're not even doing anything about it. We're just, we're just going to get into this holy huddle, this holy ghetto. Let's keep everything clean and neat and tidy. And only people that vote and believe like we do can live in this community that's gated from all the scum that lives out there. And let's just wait until Jesus comes back and saves us all. Jesus is coming back to save us all. But he's also here now. He also wants us to engage now. He all, the, the kingdom has broken in now. And so what, what Jesus does in the gospel of Mark, he, lives, he speaks and preaches a kingdom that is here but not yet. And he does this by word and deed together. Word and deed. Holding the already and not yet in perfect tension. Our battle is not against this physical world, but at the same time, we're not afraid of the world and the culture either. A professor at a, at a local seminary said it really well this week on his blog, and his website's on the screen. And he said this on his blog. It's beautiful. How do we understand the story of the mission of God? It demands to be understood as a story that turns the narrative of the world on its head. Too often, those who proclaim faith in Jesus view our position in the world as a small, persecuted, powerless minority striving as best we can to plug our little Christian narratives into the overwhelming narrative of sin, death, and corruption. And when we see ourselves so small and our power so slight, we perceive our calling as one of making holy enclaves to protect ourselves from the impurities and the powers of the world. How different is our posture when we see that the big story, the true story, the story of, the, of a kingdom come with power, a power that does not succumb to the powers of the world, either by imitation or by retreat. We do not come as agents of a small story into the overwhelming true story of the real world. No, we enter as agents of the true story, messengers of the true king, whose story ultimately determines the outcome of the little stories of power, separateness, and segregation. 
We are part, followers of Jesus are part of the real, big, giant story where God is bringing everything to an end, where every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, every single knee will bow, and even though it seems a paradox, the kingdom has come but it's not yet, you and I are, followers of Jesus, are part of this kingdom, part of this kingdom that is advancing, and part of this kingdom that is moving. We affirm that God is not an indifferent spectator of human affairs but is over all things, directing them to a specific end, even in spite of the seemingly triumph, the seeming triumph of, of evil powers. John the Baptist was, being, was a victim of state violence, yet Jesus was announcing the gospel and the inbreaking of God. What this does, it should make us reevaluate what we really believe about the rule of God. The breaking into history of the kingly power of God will indeed create happenings that will challenge the powers that oppress and dehumanize, which unmask the pretensions of of principalities and powers. That means this, the kingdom of God, we will preach the gospel and to free people from their sins. We will serve the poor. We will work to abolish sex trafficking. We will live to meet the felt needs of our community. These are all signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And Jesus commissions his disciples to continue what he came to do. Remember we said last week in the book of Mark, Mark says that because he does this, the followers of Jesus must do this. And Jesus commissions us to embody and announce within the limits of this present age, subject as they are to death and sin, the reality of the new age, of God's reign of justice and mercy. However, The ultimate sign of the kingdom in the life of this world is the cross. The ultimate sign of the kingdom in the life of this world is the cross. The cross of him who in the resurrection is manifested as Lord over all powers, even the power of death. See, the kingdom of God is a reversal of all things, even power. Jesus didn't come to break the bones of the Romans or to rule with a scepter, not yet anyway. The symbol of power was the cross that Jesus came to bleed and die upon. The kingdom of God is so upside down that it hides victory in defeat. When everyone in the book of Mark is looking at Jesus on the cross, that looks like defeat. Darkness won, but the centurion proclaims truly This was the Son of God. And the way Mark tells the story is that then Jesus rose from the grave, and then traditionally the book of Mark just ends like that. The kingdom of God is so upside down that it hides victory and defeat. Victory was hidden in the cross. Power is found in powerlessness. Only the true live, only the people that live give up their life. If you want to live, you have to die. The kingdom is a paradox. And because the kingdom is a paradox, it requires a response. You can't just step into it because it's beyond the natural. You can't just get a, be a part of it and sign up for it because it's internal. The kingdom of God requires a response. How do you get into this kingdom? Repent and believe the gospel. Now, when I say repent, a lot of people in here might not like that, that word at all, especially here. No one likes that word. No one likes the word repent, and 
when, when I say repent, and you don't like it, it's because you would have to agree that there's something wrong with you. And you would say, who are you to tell me that there's something wrong with me? And one of the biggest arguments against Christianity is that Christianity is a crutch. You've probably heard that before. Oh, you believe in Christianity, you follow Jesus, well, that's a crutch. And I would say this, what's wrong with crutches? Why got to be a crutch hater? <laughs> I mean, seriously, think about it. If somebody is broken, they need a crutch. You don't walk up to somebody that has a crutch and you go, you're such a sellout, look at you and your crutch, holding up your right side of your body, just whatever. Ah, you don't do that at all. Broken people need crutches. And yes, the gospel has come to mend what is broken. There is an aspect to it that Christianity is because we realize that we're broken. And what's really wrong there, seriously, what's really wrong is that the word repent, it offends our deepest sense of self-sufficiency. You're trying to say that I don't have everything within me to do everything I want to do? It offends our self-sufficiency, our deepest sense of it. But if we're totally honest and all the masks came off, we would all admit that we are all totally broken. Those who grew up in the church are probably broken. Those who have rarely darkened the door of a church are broken. This is why Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance involves that you turn from something. And belief involves that you turn to something. Jesus melds these two words, repent and believe. What Jesus meant by repentance is to abandon your set of agendas and your prerogatives and embrace his. To turn wholeheartedly to God. And I won't be naive to think that it, that it doesn't take a certain level of belief. Jesus said it would. If I just said, hey, repent and believe Jesus, you're like, but I, I, I don't know if I can. It takes a level of belief. It takes a level of trust. It took a level of belief for the people of God then, and it will take a level of belief for the people of God today. But belief involves that you turn to the gospel. This is the wonderful, beautiful, good news, the gospel. The gospel is that you are way, way worse than you ever thought you were. If you're in here and go, I got it halfway together. No, you have it all the way wrong but you are more loved than you can ever imagine. So the gospel should absolutely humble you, and it should liberate you at the same time. As John the Baptist was handed over, that same word, John the Baptist was handed over and was arrested, the same word and the same thing happens to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was handed over to his death, but his death was different. He died so that you and I could have life. And that is the gospel, and that is what Jesus is proclaiming. It's the gospel that breaks into time and space right now, that you can repent and believe right now, that you can be freed from sin and the devil right now. And I know that takes a level of belief, and you're in here going, I just don't believe in all of that stuff. It does take a level of belief to believe upon Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. And I know, Lord, I know that it, this takes a level of belief and trust. To trust our lives to you 
There's probably all these questions that are swirling around in people's heads. Maybe even people that have, have been in church for a very long time, maybe those that have never, that are just invited here or whatever, and they're here because they, they, they wanted to say yes to a, a friend or something. I don't know. They're here. I pray, God, that you would open eyes to see your gospel as truth, as deliverance. I pray that you would empower those that, are, that follow you here to follow you and, and, and their lives would be absorbed by the grand meta-narrative, the big story of what you're doing, how you're bringing everything to fulfillment, you're bringing everything, you're wronging every right, you will do that. We wanna be your agents, your hands. We don't, we don't wanna be too much, too much now and not enough later or not enough, we, we don't wanna do that, Lord. We wanna, we wanna hold these things in tension in this city where we believe the kingdom of God is breaking into this city, but it's to come as well. We believe that. In Jesus' name.